0: Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist, speaker, and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I named It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addictions. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to be talking about shame, resiliency, and sex addiction. And we're going to have a conversation with my colleague, Sue Merlino, and myself about how shame ties into sex addiction and what really is going to help those who are living in shame. So welcome, Sue. I'm so glad to see you again.
1: Hey, Andrew. Great to be here. You know, when I was thinking about what shame means and how it feels when I think about it, um... I really related to feeling guilty. And so, is there a difference between shame and guilt and, you know, how would you explain that?
0: Great question. So, shame and guilt are often confused. They're they're very similar, but this is the main difference. So, guilt is when you feel that you've done something wrong or bad. On the other hand, shame is when you feel like you are bad. Right. When you feel like you're defective or unworthy or just, you know, someone who doesn't deserve to feel any anything that is worthwhile in, in life. Basically. So it's more like
1: owning the emotion other than like the guilt is kind of like the verb of. The emotion, I
0: guess. In a, sh- in a sense. I mean, the way I look at it is that, that guilt is something we all have and shame is something we all have. And they're actually both emotions in a way. And, and, and what I mean by that is guilt is that feeling that I, I must have done something that really isn't al- in alignment with who I am or who I want to be, right? So that's just acknowledging that there's something that is based on Something that that is out of sync. Shame is that deeper feeling of, I am a bad person.
1: It's identifying with
0: it. Exactly. It becomes part of one's identity. And that's where it can get a lot of people into trouble. I see. So I actually wanted to share a story with you, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. back in 1994 was a time when, number one, I was much younger. But number two, I was realizing that compulsive sex was becoming really problematic for me. It was something that was part of my everyday world. It was something that was really a problem that I knew was getting worse and worse. And I decided that I was going to go to a 12-step meeting. And the 12-step meeting was something that I, I knew was important for me to check out, but... I didn't want to go to a meeting close by to where I lived. At the time I was living in Venice here in, in Los Angeles near the beach. And I decided that I was going to go to a meeting as far away from Venice as possible. So every Sunday afternoon I would drive to Pasadena. And for those of you who are not local, Pasadena is kind of like driving from, Indiana to Illinois, I mean, it feels like it's really, really far away. But what I did was I I wanted to make sure that nobody would know me. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be recognized. I didn't want to see colleagues or friends or neighbors or anything like that. So I went to Pasadena every single Sunday afternoon for many months. And what I realized was I was going to Pasadena because I was in shame. And I was feeling like there was something terribly wrong with me. And after a few months of going to that particular meeting, I felt less shame because there was all these other people that showed up every Sunday at five o'clock in this church in Pasadena. And they were all dealing with the same problem as well. And so we would go out to fellowship at this cafeteria nearby. We would have the time together in the meeting and what really came of that whole experience was very quickly the shame started to subside. And that's one of the beauties of 12-step fellowships.
1: So you were conscious enough to know that um, that was the reason you didn't want to go local. Yes. Like you were making a very conscious decision, making that trek every Sunday. And then you kind of felt at some point hey, this doesn't matter. Like, I I don't have this feeling anymore. So do you remember that time when it switched off?
0: I do, actually. Mm -hmm. I think I went to that meeting maybe for six to eight months religiously. And then I decided I was going to look up meetings closer to home. And so I ended up finding a meeting in West L.A., which was maybe 10 or 15 minutes away. And I started going to that meeting every Thursday night for many, many Months, years actually. Mm-hmm. And that was a turning point where I felt like, okay, it's nearby, it's in my neighborhood, I might run into somebody I know, but I wasn't feeling the depth of the shame that I had originally.
1: So I kind of wonder about that a little bit because do people run into people they know? And it is anonymous, right? So what happens when that happens?
0: Absolutely. So it's inevitable that we run into people that we know. I have run into colleagues, I've run into clients, I've run into people that I've known in other walks of life that I just didn't know went to 12-step meetings. And it's really an honor system, right? Because we're all in the same boat and we all want our anonymity to be respected. It's not 100% guarantee, of course, but hopefully, people will be respectful enough that they won't be gossiping or or talking to anybody about the fact that you were seen at a meeting.
1: Right, right. So, well, let's move on. A, um, you talked about how shame and guilt about emotions and feelings, um, but a lot of times, I think people probably are confused by the two, and, and shame really does go unrecognized and. Um, I would, I would assume to say, and obviously set me straight that it's, it's being mindful or being in touch with our own feelings and self, um, retrospect, I guess, looking back on ourselves and, and, and identifying. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Sure. This is a little bit of a psychobabble term, but we're really talking about one's internal emotional world. And sometimes with clients, I'll talk about what's happening internally. What, what are you aware of inside? And there's a lot more than emotions. There's, there's emotions, there's thoughts, there's sensations, there's images, there's memories. There's all kinds of things that create our internal world. But when it comes to emotions, as I'm sure, you know, Sue, Many of us did not grow up with much of a feelings language, is that true? Right, yeah. Yeah. Was that your case in your family? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean t- even love wasn't ever that word wasn't ever shared, uh, you know, and it was more the only time feelings were shared were were anger.
0: Right, right. Which is so poignant and, and sad actually. But same in my family. We didn't use the L word and anger was a primary emotion in, in the home but one thing that i always say about shame is that it's it's natural and part of being human right so there is not a positive or a negative emotion because emotions really aren't positive or negative they're not good or bad they're simply part of the human experience and so when we're talking about about shame and guilt, and excitement, and love, and anger, and sadness, and fear, and joy, you know, those are the really the, there's lots and lots of words, of course, right. but, but when I used to work with kids, I would say, <laughs> mad, sad, glad, afraid, what, what, what of those four, and then if we add mad, sad, glad, afraid, guilt, shame, love, excitement, etc., we're, we're expanding the, the language. So I think the biggest thing, as you said, is to be mindful, is to be able to start to identify what's going on inside and to understand that shame is something that we all experience. And if, if it's something that somehow you feel unworthy or you feel like you're a bad person because of something that, that is in your life or that in, is inside of you, that's really what we're talking about in terms of toxic shame.
1: So a lot of times like when people say you're making me feel guilty say the first thing that pops into my head is like nobody can make you feel guilty you're it's your choice does that work with shame as well like you're you're choosing to feel that or to be that
0: yes and no with shame it's often given to us as kids so shame is often given to us by others, sometimes by parents, sometimes by siblings, teachers, mm-hmm. peers, etc. And I agree with you. Generally, like something like you made me feel t- feel guilty or you made me mad. That's not really accurate because there are no puppeteers out there, and we're not puppets. So we have right. to take responsibility for our own feelings as well. But I think you're on to something because sometimes as a kid, we don't have a choice, right? That's different than when we're grown up. And and we'll get into that a little bit.
1: Okay. Well, can I just share a little story? Because it's all coming out in my head right now while you're talking about this. As a child, I was a bedwetter for many, 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 many years. And I think this is probably a big one for a lot of people with the shame. Mm -hmm. Because I was left to figure it out on my own. And couldn't call for help like my parents weren't involved in me taking the sheets off my bed and you know cleaning them i had to do all that myself and was kind of left to my own to figure that out but was shamed in not being able to have friends over for sleepovers and also not going to sleepovers. my mom would tell them i couldn't go to sleepovers because i was a bed wetter so that was that's how I felt growing up. Like I couldn't have these friends that other people had because I was a bed and it just kind of perpetuated it, I think, over the years. But yeah, I mean that I held on to that for for a very, very, very long time. It's kind of difficult, of course. But, but yeah, I mean it is. So let's continue well, on. What I wanted
0: to share first of all, thanks for talking about that because it's something that often does not get talked about. And number two, it it illustrates how, how alone you were, right? How, how profoundly alone you were at that time. And so you were left sitting with your feelings, feeling like you had done something wrong and and that there was something wrong with you. And that's a, a very poignant example of shame that, that was not attended to, if anything, you're describing neglect
1: right right yeah a lot of <laughs> neglect
0: yes yeah
1: So yeah it's something um, i mean and it kind of goes back to what you spoke about last time with claudia about um trauma as a child you know and i think that all kind of ties together and and weaves its, its little web there for uh, um starting out in this world absolutely yeah. i mean s-
0: sometimes we talk about trauma as a whole but what you're really referring to is relational trauma and i think one of the reasons you and i enjoy each other so much is because i think we have similar backgrounds in the sense that our we we kind of raised ourselves and and we had to become very very self-sufficient and oftentimes when we become very self-sufficient and hyper-responsible there's this underlying feeling of but what if somebody really finds out that, that I'm imperfect or, or something right, along right. those lines? Yeah,
1: it's difficult. Yeah. One of the turning points um, for me was, I remember one of the times I was out here by myself traveling and, and, and went out to dinner with you and Mariano and having this sense of needing to control things all the time, and you ordered for all of us, and I was like, What? That was fantastic. <laughs> like for me to let that go mm-hmm. was really my first time of being like I can allow somebody to take care of me and do this. So Right.
0: Right. I love that story. And I hope that in in just a little little way that that helped do some healing around that super self-sufficient kid that you had to be.
1: All right. Cool. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there we are back in
0: the, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, what well, a good time. <laughs>
1: so, I know you're a big fan of um, Brene Brown, who considers herself to be a shame researcher. So, what makes her research stand out? And um, say a little bit about her.
0: Wow. Well, I, I could use a whole podcast on Brene Brown. I'm a little love addicted to her, number one. Nice. And number two, she really changed something for me in my practice. I had been in practice many years when she appeared with her TED Talk in 2010. And her TED Talk was called The Power of Vulnerability. It was really about shame, resiliency. It was about vulnerability and risk-taking and intimacy. And everything she talked about was very reflective of my practice, and my own beliefs of healing. And so when she came on the scene, which was very exciting for me, I I recommended her TED Talk to everybody and still do. But also I read a book called The Gifts of Imperfection that she wrote. Mm -hmm. And being a recovering perfectionist, The Gifts of Imperfectionist really spoke to me in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and so one of the things that I I like to say about Brene Brown is that she put into the conversation, uh, into the, the, into the world, Mm -hmm. a a broader conversation of what it means to heal more effectively from the kind of shame that really we all carry. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just have such immense gratitude for her.
1: And so if somebody were to like want to watch that Brene Brown, that original Ted talk, just Google her on Ted talks and you know should, and I'll put the link in the, um, in the notes here so people can find that as well.
0: Fantastic. And it's very simple because she's done so much mm-hmm. since then. I mean, over right. the past nine years she's exploded, but that particular Ted talk still holds up very strongly and it's simply called the power of vulnerability and, and, she's really the the pioneer in a sense i mean there's so many people that have been pioneers but she's been the pioneer of the last decade for sure
1: and her stories about her own travels and, and through life and pitfalls and it's it's great to hear that mm-hmm. i heard her recently on mark maron's yeah and it was it was a great interview if you haven't heard that one either,
0: right. the Mark Maron podcast. I yeah, mean, yeah. oh my gosh, I loved it. yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I, I think she's she's very so humble and articulate, humble, irreverent yeah. and and it's so a real genuine. Person. Exactly. yeah, it's just
1: like us t- chatting with each other, yeah,
0: well, like I said, I could talk about her all podcast right, right. but that gives people <laughs> maybe a we'll bit get her percent. on maybe we'll get her on this one <laughs> you never know
1: <laughs> so she also says that shame is given to us by others and it's kind of we chatted about this a little earlier and that shame is healed through others can you share an example of that
0: right she she has so many different simple ways of looking at healing and one of the things and, and one of the reasons that this particular phrase stood out for me is because i'm a group therapist and in group it's such a communal way of breaking down shame right so let's say someone was a bedwetter for instance right and and they carry that shame into their adulthood and they've developed patterns and and um, themes in their life because of that background Maybe they've also learned ways of surviving based on that background, right? But sometimes those strategies get stale and they're not working anymore. Are you talking
1: like coping mechanisms? Yeah, okay.
0: Exactly, coping mechanisms. So for instance, somebody's been in therapy for a while, individual therapy, and then they decide to join a group. And it's a weekly process group. And it's made up of people from all walks of life who really just want to learn about themselves and help others learn about themselves. And everyone who comes to group has some level of shame, right? As we talked about, it's a a human condition. And the thing about group and the thing about 12-step as well is that by being around others who really get it and really want to become emotionally reliable because that's an important Mm -hmm. antidote to shame is when you have emotionally reliable people around you who sometimes believe in you as much or more so than you believe in yourself and in this case i think group is this ongoing pseudo family that helps people feel more worthy so to go from unworthy Some people really unworthy Mm -hmm. to feeling more worthy is is the price of admission, really. And
1: I assume that you know ups the self esteem and you know being able to take a compliment, things like that. That just kind of wrap their head around uh, what shame has done to us in our minds.
0: That's right. That's right. Our our minds and just to say something about our mind since you mentioned the brain the well-worn path is what we're trying to find ways to combat so if the well-worn path the grooves in our brain we can call them synapses or neurons um, if they're used to a shame path we're really looking at maybe a self-compassion path or a mindfulness path or, or ways of being curious rather than beating oneself up.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of self-awareness and, you know, making the, the choice when you get to the point. Or why should I feel shame right now when I really should just feel compassion? Or I really should feel fill in the blank, you know, instead. It's a...
0: Daily practice. Yeah. Right. Because many of us give ourselves shame messages many times each day. So the first step is really the awareness of that for sure. Cool.
1: So, yeah, talk a little bit about toxic shame and healthy shame. Because, uh, how can it be healthy?
0: <laughs> well, these are words that came to us in the 80s. There's a guy named John Bradshaw. And John Bradshaw wrote a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And I'm not recommending the book, although there are parts of it that I think are very valuable. But I mentioned him because he was one of the first people who talked about toxic shame versus healthy shame. So in a nutshell, well, why don't I do this? I'm I'm going to share about a client without Mm -hmm. using their real name, of course. And um, her name is Eleanor. And Eleanor came to my group three years ago. And... I actually had never seen a client who self-attacked so frequently. It was, it was so frequent that, that I, I could not even keep track of how often she went into self-attack. Sometimes it was more subtle, but many times it was very evident, very vivid. So she really suffered from self-attack syndrome, if mm-hmm. you want to call yeah, it that. interesting, yeah. Because that's what she had practiced since she was a kid. You know she had a really rough childhood and and suffered in some ways, like we were talking about, she felt very, very alone, profoundly al- lonely. And she also felt like it was up to her that nobody else was going to really look after her. And so she she's muddled through life. She's actually been around many, many decades. And Eleanor, came to group because she just was having difficulty with relationships with coworkers with romantic relationships across the board and one of the first things that the group members noticed in addition to myself was how brutal she was on herself and so that's an example of toxic shame okay where she was doing it to herself so frequently and with such venom that she didn't even realize it wow. And it was hard for the group to even tolerate.
1: Yeah, I would assume. Like it's some almost self-inflicted emotional abuse.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so healthy shame is a little bit different. And I'm going to move away from Eleanor for a moment. Healthy shame, like in the sex addiction world, is when somebody does something out of their integrity, right? Out of alignment with what they really want in life. And as a result... They're able to observe themselves. They notice that it's out of sync with what they want or who they are. And they're able to call themselves out on it. And so it becomes a boundary of sorts where they're able to really check in with themselves and say, oh, that's not who I want to be. And so that's a healthier kind of shame because it's actually serving a, a vital purpose towards getting better. That makes sense.
1: So with uh, sex addiction, shame can be a cause for compulsive sex and almost always shows up as a result of out-of-control sexual behavior. So how does that happen?
0: Well, like we were talking about, childhood trauma results in shame, right? So so it's it's understandable that shame would be a factor or contributing factor towards somebody trying to escape from their feelings or feel better or find a way to move beyond the shame. So naturally, shame would be a contributor to acting out sexually if one is really doing their best to cope with their feelings, but it's just too much to cope with. And so that's where it it could be called a, a cause or at least a causal factor towards sexual acting out now usually if somebody gets into an out of control sexual behavior pattern right so they're acting out daily or more than daily Mm -hmm. many hours a day that becomes hopefully it becomes an example of healthy shame where somebody is starting to see oh this doesn't fit for who i am Mm -hmm. this doesn't fit for my life and and for my relationships and for my future and so that's where shame becomes an effect on the the actual the actual acting out sexually so it's it can be a cause and it can be an effect okay. and actually it's it's important that both are part of the cycle because it's an awareness cycle that eventually can stop the behavior or at least slow it down right right it's almost like
1: going up the flagpole a little bit
0: exactly it's yeah. hey, a perspective
1: What are some shame resiliency techniques that you recommend?
0: There are a lot of different ways that people can work with their shame. Like I said, finding people who believe in you more than you believe in yourself. People who can really be in your corner, can be dependable, you can count on them, and who you can really be fully yourself with, that's one of the top Antidote. Just
1: connecting with people, connection that are positive people, supportive people.
0: Right, positive, supportive, loving, compassionate, non-judgmental. Yes.
1: Do those people exist? <laughs>
0: You're one of them. That's why I hang out with you. I know, right. So 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 surrounding yourself with those kinds of folks um, is is so vital. Okay, but but also being able to notice what you're doing, right? So Eleanor, as an example, started to notice with the group's help how vicious she was with herself. And three years later, she's not perfect like any of us, but she's not as vicious as she used to be. She's not as brutal. So that kind of awareness and, and really starting to take contrary actions. So if I'm going down that self-attack mode, that shame pathway... What am I willing to do different? Can I practice some self-compassion? Can I come up with a gratitude list? Can I call a friend and, and let them know or a sponsor or somebody right. who I can connect with and feel like I'm not alone in this?
1: Create healthy thinking processes. Like I like to write with a dry erase marker on my mirrors, like morning affirmations. Nice. Like, yeah. So they work like you're beautiful. Go get them. Take, take the day. You know, just different little things that that make me smile. I and love that. Yeah. I, I,
0: I think that what we're also talking about is how we develop an inner critic inside of us. And oftentimes the inner critic is really the culprit of the shame. And you're talking about the inner coach. Right,
1: right. right. Tap that's, into the inner coach.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and it's easy to do. So yeah. and it works. It yes. really, 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 really works. And quieting that we're we say things to ourselves that we would never say to a friend or a stranger even. The things that I hear in my head are shocking. Like, why are you saying that to yourself? You Absolutely. should treat yourself like the number one.
0: And it, I happen to know that you have two beautiful sons and you would never say those kinds of things to them, but somehow the mind does funny things yeah. and, and, and catching yourself and, and trying to replace those more painful thoughts with more loving thoughts is what it's all about.
1: They actually make me laugh now. So when I hear them, I'm like, what?
0: <laughs> Humor is, is a yeah. huge technique. Yep. We, we have to laugh at ourselves, yeah. not take ourselves so damn seriously.
1: <laughs> it's true. It's true. Life's too short. Well, For thanks, sure. Andrew. Thank Thanks for sir. setting me straight on all of this, and yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Thank you for being such an awesome conversationalist with me. I so done. I love our time together. I do
1: too. It's so fun.
0: Cool.